Welcome back to Across the Movie Aisle, presented by Bulwark Plus. I am your host, Sonny Bunch, culture editor of The Bulwark. I'm joined, as always, by Alyssa Rosenberg of The Washington Post, Peter Suderman of Reason Magazine. Alyssa, Peter, how are you today? I'm swell. I am happy to be talking about movies with friends. Uh, before we get started, a quick reminder to get your ticket to Across the Movie Aisle Live on May 16th. At 7.30 p.m. at the Alamo Draft House in Crystal City. We're going to be talking war games, and you're going to be watching war games, the movie War Games. It's funny, I, I just rewatched it uh, recently for, like, straight through from start to finish for the first time in years uh, recently, and it uh, it holds up. So it's it's fun, 40 years, uh, we're going to be talking about the apocalyptic moment in 1980 cinema, how that kind of differed from the 1960s. It's, it's going to be wild, wild times. Should be fun. Now on to today's episode. <laughs> First up in controversies and controversies. Well, we figured this was going to happen last week, but we weren't 100% sure because we were taping before it actually happened. But the WGA is officially on strike. Uh, and the distance between the WGA and the AMPTP, basically the studios, is uh, pretty pretty big, combined with the fact that the writers and the producers aren't even really officially negotiating at the moment. And uh, everyone seems to think this is going to be a very, very long Strike. Uh, the most worrisome thing about what we've seen so far, uh, just from our perspective as, uh, you know, non-participants in the the thing, the people who just love to watch movies and TV shows, is that the writers honestly are, are asking for fairly reasonable things like larger writers rooms and some sort of viewership based residual payment for streaming shows. Um, and these requests were rejected without a counteroffer. According to the WGA, they put out a fact sheet that listed, you know, kind of points of tentative agreement and points of disagreement and what was rejected without a counteroffer, and this, these were among them. The producers say they're simply just not going to institute things like quotas for writer rooms on shows that don't need more than one or a handful of writers. They're, I think, still pretty skeptical about, you know, any any sort of performance-based uh, pay, but, you know, we'll see. The distance between the two positions is large and not likely to close anytime soon. Uh, what this means for shows currently in production kind of depends on the show. And the people running it uh, over at HBO Max, the new season of The House of the Dragon will keep shooting. Uh, but Hacks is shutting down at Netflix. The Duffer Brothers said that they're not going to start filming the final season of Stranger Things until this is all resolved, which is probably like the worst thing that Netflix could possibly hear. The new Blade movie is uh, getting shut down as well. They're not even going to start shooting it at Disney. That script's not ready to go. You know, Disney and HBO Max, they've sent their writer producers, the so-called hyphenates, who generally serve as showrunners and other kind of high-level writers, uh, notice that they are still expected to produce the shows that they are working on, even if they aren't going to perform writing duties. Uh, the WGA has said it will find members who do so. Um, it will be curious to see how that sorts itself out over the next few months here. And it's going to be a few months that I don't think, uh, you know, is is going to be resolved in less than that. I hate to make big predictions here, but I think this is going to be a pretty long strike. Um, and I do not think uh, the producers and directors are looking at this and like really thinking, well, it's going to be easy for us to make a deal. But, you know, you don't know. I don't know. Maybe they will. I don't know. If the directors do go on strike, though, it's chaos. Bedlam. Bedlam in Hollywood. So what does this all mean for us, the viewers, the most important people out there, the consumers, the customers? Well, it depends. It depends on what you like to watch, I guess. Uh, if you like reality TV programming and sports, you're not going to notice any difference. There's not going to be any difference for you. If you like foreign productions on Netflix, you're also in luck, as most of those shows aren't going to be impacted by this work stoppage. They are not WGA 
produce shows. However, if you do enjoy movies that are made in America, if you do enjoy television shows, the scripted dramas and comedies that are made in America, uh, you really only need to go back to the 2007-2008 strike to see how wrong things can go and how quickly they can go wrongly. Uh, as the folks over at Semaphore helpfully reminded us, 2007 and 2008 brought a spate of half-baked blockbusters to the big screen, like real misses like X-Men Origins Wolverine, uh, the James Bond sequel Quantum of Solace, Transformers, Revenge of the Fallen, uh, the start of the ill-fated G.I. Joe franchise. Late night talk shows went dark. They've already gone dark here this time around, and and we'll see how much longer they stay dark. Uh, Scripted dramas. If anybody remembers... The sharp decline in quality in the uh, the the kind of second and third seasons of Friday Night Lights. Well, there's a reason for that, and that reason is the 2007-2008 strike. Heroes, Prison Break, all of those shows had their worst seasons as a result of the strike. The one winner was reality programming, and you can construct a plausible alternate reality case that the WGA strike helped essentially resurrect the fortune of Donald Trump's show The Apprentice by introducing us to The Apprentice Celebrity Edition, which in turn helped keep him in the public eye and helped uh, allow him to gain the prestige needed to become president. Who could say what might have been without that strike? I don't know. Peter, when do audiences need to start worrying about the quality of the programming they're going to see? Well, again, it depends on the type of show that they're watching. I mean, if if you're a late night um, talk show fan, then the quality is probably going to go down, I don't know, already? Last week? Zero. Yeah, right? Unless you're like a, a hate watcher fan who like only watched because you thought the shows were terrible, in which case no writing and no show is, I guess, better for you. But that's probably like a, a limited case. I, Again, it's the timing is different depending on on the medium. Television typically shoots months or maybe up to a year out, although something like House of the Dragon obviously has a longer lead time. Movies are typically through with principal photography about a year before they are scheduled to come out, although again, depends uh, to some extent on the movie. That's that's a very broad brush uh, sort of guideline, not a strict rule. You can certainly find films that are still in principal photography, you know, eight months, nine months out from their expected release. That does happen as well. So for theatrical releases, you probably are not going to see a big shift this year. But next year you might. And this is one of the interesting things about that uh, semaphore piece that you mentioned that looked back at what happened with the 2007 strike. And it just notes a bunch of movies that came out that were worse than they should have been. So Quantum of Solace, the second of the, you know, James Bond movies uh, from the last era, might not ever have been a great movie. You know, it's hard to know what the counterfactual is, but it was really kind of junky and thrown together. And this piece makes the case that a big part of that was that they went to shoot with a script that had not been finished because they just didn't have any writers that they could tap to actually punch it up and make it better. It is kind of funny, though, in that same piece, they mention other movies they say might have suffered from rushed scripts and then received poor reviews in advance. And they mention X-Men Origins Wolverine, which was indeed like a a turd. I mean, just a truly awful movie. But then they also list G.I. Joe, The Rise of the Cobra. Do we think G.I. Joe, The Rise of the Cobra was going to be good? 
Really bad. Like, was there a is there an alternate universe in which they had you know a bunch of union writers who like were ready to tackle that movie and figure out the Channing Tatum problem that that movie presented and like make just like a really really good soft reboot to the GI Joe frame? I I kind of think that movie was going to be bad no matter what. Like writers, union strikes, none of this really mattered. It was a GI Joe movie. And it wasn't going to be good. I think you're really selling G.I. Joe short here. That could have been a that could have been a master. It could have been a Transformer style masterpiece in the right right hands. Oh, I mean, they also list Transformers Revenge of the Fallen in this list, which, uh, the, you know, that movie yeah. wasn't so great. Indefensible. Terrible. That movie was terrible. Anyway, that we like this is the thing that might end up happening is not that we like run out of movies this year, but that the movies that come out next year, uh, in particular sort of summer and late year movies for 2024, they will probably for the most part still come out on time. Probably a few of them will be delayed. Yeah, sure. But those movies might end up being worse might end up being kind of junky because they just had to work with the scripts that they had in place as of uh, the strike date last week and they they couldn't do any rewrites and couldn't do anything else i mean again i don't fully understand what directors for example are allowed to do with regards to writing for example in this write up they talk about how you know the the, the director of, of quantum of solace was doing some onset rewriting as was daniel craig and daniel craig is like i'm not a writer which you know fair not everyone is but maybe some directors can do the punching up themselves um i again i don't totally understand exactly how the the rules work uh, on this sort of thing but it just seems pretty clear to me that if this thing stretches on for more than a month that next year's movies are likely to suffer either there will be fewer of them or they will be lower quality or some combination. Yeah, and I think this is an argument that a lot of writers have been making, is that the idea that you hand in a script and it's just sort of cast in adamantium and doesn't evolve once people start saying words and the director sort of sees how things work or, you know, come together or don't come together. You know, there are some people who write incredibly detailed scripts. They're, you know, absolutely cast in stone, but... You know, there is editing that happens, and the idea that, you know, writers aren't involved in that is, I think, a bit of a misunderstanding of the process for a lot of TV shows and movies. I mean, look, I think there's two places you're going to see this stoppage affect things first. Uh, that is on scripted comedy shows. I mean, the the fact that Hacks shut down, despite them being most of the way through that season, I believe, is really indicative of the fact of how much, you know, on-the-fly writing gets done even on a prestige comedy like that where it's, you know, it's pretty well written and scripted ahead of time. But also on like on the big budget action movies. I mean, look, the MCU, right? The MCU has writers on hand all the time. They're constantly writing new alt takes. They're constantly writing new scenes. You know, those those productions are done on the fly. I, like they really are in a very, very real way. And I don't think that you can make that Marvel method of filmmaking work without having WGA writers on staff who are there all the time making sure everything goes through perfectly well. I mean, that's why they uh, shut down Blade before it even got started. I, I don't think they're going to put anything else into production while this is while this is going on, because if you do not have the folks there to kind of patch the holes that are kind of inherent to this method of filmmaking, you are not going to be able to put a movie together. And if I'm Disney, that's the thing I'm most scared about, right? It's not so much the the showrunners who don't want to do their 
line A through H work. So there there are rules in the the WGA and between WGA and producers about like what producers can do to screenplays and you know editing for time things like that, right? And one of the things again that the WGA has said is that our hyphenate showrunners, our showrunners producers are not allowed to do that sort of work. You are not allowed to do that work that has specifically been carved out in previous negotiations. And it's going to be a real it's going to be a real problem. I, don't I, know. I would say specifically with Marvel, their process is just very iterative. And so I, I interviewed Christopher Marcus and Stephen McFeely, the screenwriters of a bunch of the big Marvel movies uh, around the time that Captain America Civil War came out. And they talked about how it was just a, a, an almost modular process of, of building up the structure first. But then, like, they needed scenes that did work. Right. And so they would write version after version after version after version of that scene. And then one of the other things we know is that Marvel edits, reshoots and then tests their movies fairly obsessively to the point where um, when Doctor Strange 2 came out last year, uh, several months beforehand, there was a quote that went around from director Sam Raimi was like, well, I think my movie's done. But, you know, you never know with those Marvel guys. They're just working right up until the last minute where literally the director did not know if the movie had been locked and was complete or not. And that's not necessarily a bad process. That's one that has delivered a, a lot of huge hits. But it is one that requires people to be there and be working and be writing and be rewriting in a lot of cases because a lot of the, the work here is not just sort of putting together a first draft of a script. It is constantly rewriting in response to feedback, whether that's from other studio executives or whether it's from audience test screenings. It will be a, another golden age for fans of reality programming, though. If you uh, if you're just here for your home improvement shows on Discovery Plus, David Zaslav's got a big smile on his face. He wants to welcome you in to the D plus the other D plus family. Just come on in. Just get Max. I mean, as a big consumer of, of scripted dramas, I think that the big impact is going to be that we've already seen spacing between seasons really draw out, right? It used to be that seasons of television were pretty much clockwork. You got one every year starting around September or October. And now sometimes seasons are, you know, 14 or 18 or even 24 months apart. And with the strike here, especially if it drags on longer than a month or two, I, I think it's quite likely that season spacing for big shows is just going to get drawn out. And we will we may see two and a half or three year gaps between some of these seasons for big hit shows just because it takes that much longer to get a new season off the ground. It's going to be an interesting test of brand power, right? Because some of these shows, you know, are you going to count on viewers coming back a couple of years later? Um, I mean, I think we've seen that some of these long gaps for shows like Westworld uh, have been really problematic in terms of sustaining audience interest. I blame The Sopranos. The Sopranos did a lot of good things, but they did one very bad thing, which was really get get creatives familiar and comfortable with the idea of taking too much time in between series. That's a that's a cons and nons for another day. All right. So what do we think? Is it a controversy or a controversy that we the voracious consumers, the locust like addicts to quality television and movies uh, will have to subsist on a diet of awful reality TV and some less awful sports, I guess, if you're into that sort of thing. Thanks to the writer's strike. Peter. I'm just excited for the Across the Movie Aisle episodes about, like, Survivor reruns. Yeah. Alyssa. Uh, I mean, Union Strong I with the writers, but it's going to be tough. The one silver lining to this whole thing, I will say, is that there is already an infinite 
amount of television out there to watch. We talk all the time about how we don't have enough time to watch all the things that are out there. So if, if productions really do shut down for a long time, could be in for some some retro ATMA, folks. We're going to catch up on some of these series that we haven't been watching. You can watch along with us. We can do a little TV club, old TV club. It'll be fun. It'll be great. I'm sure none of you will quit listening. All right. Uh, make sure to swing by Bulwark Plus on Friday for our bonus episode previewing the summer movie schedule. We're going to look at one big movie and one smaller movie that you might not have heard of in the hopes of helping you plan your summer movie-going adventures. Speaking of adventures in the movies, on to the main event, Guardians of the Galaxy, Volume 3. The third and final, possibly, probably, entry in the James Gunn-helmed cosmic space adventure, Guardians of the Galaxy, Volume 3, feels like something of a return to form for the struggling mega-franchise that is the MCU. Look, after disappointing sequels to Black Panther, Ant-Man, and Thor as well as a Doctor Strange sequel that I liked, but I think a lot of people didn't like, and I mostly liked it because of how unmarvel it felt. This is a movie, The Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, that reminds us why people love the MCU writ large in the first place. It's fun. It's kind of sarcastic. The leads all have great chemistry. The action is mediocre, sure, but not distractingly bad, which is a real important qualification there. Uh, And it has some real heart to it. Uh, If you had told me 10 years ago that I'd be in a movie theater, tearing up at the thought of a CGI raccoon being torn away from his cybernetically enhanced otter friend, well... I'd have thought you were nuts, but here we are, folks. Here we are. Uh, Guardians 3 does something interesting in that it chooses to foreground Rocket Raccoon, who's voiced by Bradley Cooper, uh, and his origin story rather than Peter Quill, who's played by Chris Pratt, and his sadness at having lost uh, Gamora, played by Zoe Saldana, after a younger version of her was brought back to... You know what? It doesn't matter. She had amnesia. She's got amnesia. She's got amnesia. We're just going to call it amnesia, and she, she can't remember being with Peter Quill. That's how that works. Anyway, the Guardians, who include Drax the Destroyer, played by Dave Bautista, Mantis, played by Palm Clementiev, and Nebula, played by Karen Gillian, they got to save Rocket's life by finding a code that's in the computer banks of the high evolutionary. Is this eugenics-obsessed mad scientist who wants to create a perfect race in the galaxy somewhere, and he's done it a whole bunch of times, and he's destroyed a whole bunch of races? It's a bad dude, the high evolutionary. You don't want to mess with him. Rocket is his crowning achievement as he's the only being to have the spark of true self-consciousness, the ability to learn and evolve and that sort of thing. To figure out how that happened, though, he's got to cut out Rocket's brain. Nobody wants to see that happen, least of all the Guardians of the Galaxy. They are not into that one bit. Uh, I'm going to say this, and it's going to sound sarcastic, but it's absolutely true and kind of important. As I was walking out of the theater, I looked down at my watch and I said to myself, oh, wow, that was two and a half hours because it didn't feel like that at all. And that's a marked difference for the MCU movies of late, all of which have felt like endless slogs, even when they are much shorter than 2.5 hours. It's a testament to this cast from Pratt on down that they're just a lot of fun to hang out with, right? Uh, Bautista's deadpans are wonderful. Nebula's annoyance feels both real and understandable. Pratt continues to show why Andy Dwyer was a perfect fit for megastardom, betting on Andy Dwyer to be the star of your mega franchise. Everybody laughed at, laughed at Marvel 10 years ago, and they're like, oh yeah, no, that makes sense now. Alyssa, as someone who uh, has also grown a little tired of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, how did you feel about Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3? I enjoyed it, to my surprise and gratification. I mean, it definitely is, um, as 
the New York Times' Kyle Buchanan joked on Twitter, it's what if a little life but a raccoon? Um, and for those of you who have not read Hanayana Gahara's A Little Life, um, it's a novel in which the main character is just like tortured in a variety of ways that seem like totally grotesque and unrealistic for a weirdly otherwise very realistic novel. Um, and so, I mean, look, if you're someone who is sensitive about animal cruelty, I under, like, I think you would not enjoy this movie. And I understand why, if you were someone who took your, like, eight-year-old to these movies, you might be a little bit taken aback. Um, but I thought that this worked really well. This is definitely the best Marvel movie since Shang-Chi. And I think both of them work for the same reason, which is that, yeah, like, a planet kind of blows up and there's a, you know, big deal bad guy. But at the same time, these stories are really grounded in well-acted personal stories, right? I mean, Bradley Cooper makes you believe that this, like, weird cybernetic raccoon is truly dedicated to his, like, weird enhanced family of grotesques and that being taken away from them is a trauma and a shock. All of the other sort of personal stories play out really nicely, and all of the characters are given sort of nicely concluding character arcs, right? I mean, like, Drax gets to sort of rediscover the version of himself as a dad, which, you know, his family was murdered before we met him in the first movie. Um, We don't have a sense of him, like, as a father. And you get to see him, you know, in very effective, well-written dad mode with this crew of, I don't don't even know how you describe them, like, genetically enhanced weird orphans. Um, The brood. It's basically the brood. Yes. You know, you get to see, you know, Nebula, someone who was sort of profoundly alienated and focused only on a destructive mission of revenge in like a joyful communal mode, getting to be the leader of an organization. You know, Groot finally like speaks words other than I am Groot. Uh, Mantis decides to like go off and have her own adventures with her crew of squid monsters. Is that what we do? But that they're, they're... things. They're weird squid things. Um, And much like, you know, all of the action in Shang-Chi is rooted in, you know, a guy having a conflict with his dad and his dad being sort of grief-stricken and screwed up and needing to rediscover himself as a person. You know, this is a movie that's rooted in recognizable human character that takes you from point A to point B and where, like, all of the spectacle is in service of that. And it also just doesn't look like garbage, right? I mean, this has been my complaint with a lot of the Marvel Cinematic Universe movies, that they just look completely awful. And whether that's due to indifference or inexperience on the part of indie-ish directors who are being handed these huge budgets for the first time, or just Marvel's practice of nickel-and-diming animation studios and working people like crazy, you know, this looks fun and weird, right? I mean, you have a whole sequence set in like, you know, a weird biological space station thing. That's like gross, but sort of interesting. And, you know, you can see that James Gunn sort of enjoys and has thought about making a world that seems strange, maybe a little gross, but definitely sort of alluring and fun to look at. And it's nice to, you know, sit through one of these and feel like not ever have the impulse that I just want to gouge my eyes out or that my eyes have already been gouged out and then I'm watching a movie through what remains of them. Yeah, Uh, that also, I did not feel like my eyes had been gouged out and that I was watching the movie through what remained of them. 
that is an important Although that would have thing. been a j- very James Gunn way to watch the movie, right? Like, yes. you can imagine... That's how Nebula watches movies. That James Gunn is going to... That's his next story, is the moviegoer who watches movies with his eyes gouged out through, like, a like there's a tube that you just, like, put it in and it just goes directly to your brain. As someone who who does not do well with eye trauma in movies, this this conversation has gone totally off the rails. Peter, what did you what did you like about this movie? Like Alyssa, I liked that the effects work wasn't garbage. And not only was it not garbage, especially in the first two thirds of the movie or so, it was often quite good. And in particular, Rocket Raccoon and then his gang of weirdo high evolutionary test subjects, right? The the otter, the walrus, and the rabbit. Those are pretty high quality effects at minimum. Don't bother me and often are like, oh, you are rendering hair and animal facial expressions uh, and and some like actually quite complicated biological stuff really quite well. I think there's some weak compositing once you get into the final 40 minutes or so of the movie, especially once you get to the destruction of Counter Earth and sort of the, the big explosions at the end. But a lot of the effects in this movie work quite well, which is something I have not been able to say about a Marvel movie in years. Uh, number two, Sonny, you said the action sequences didn't bother you, but I actually think they're better They're they're better than that. It's not just that they don't bother you. It's that each one of these action sequences has, a, has an extremely, not just clarity of action, but clarity of an idea, right? And so when we talk, when we saw John Wick 4 um, a, a month ago, I guess I wasn't on that episode, but when we all watched it, one of the things that struck all of us was that Every single one of those action sequences is like a thing you can name quickly, right? Oh, it's the Arc de Triomphe Frogger sequence. And suddenly you know exactly what that is. Even if you've never seen the movie, you can imagine they're playing Frogger with guns at the Arc de Triomphe, right? And then you can talk about like, oh, here's a sequence in which it's overhead, just like a video game, except one of the guys is shooting a fire shotgun, a distinctly identifiable idea for every one of those sequences. And every single action sequence in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 has a clear, clever idea that drives it. And then they're executed reasonably well once you get there too, right? Like, so so that's just like not something you can say about a lot of these, uh, about a lot of the Marvel action sequences where just like these days they just like, oh, character gets to this spot in the plot or in this, in this room and People start shooting and shooting lasers out of their fingers and there's just like stuff happening. There's a clarity. If you can see what's happening, right? If you can even see what's happening at all. But there is a conceptual clarity to these action sequences that is unusual and uh, above par, certainly for Marvel movies, but I think even for just kind of big budget blockbuster filmmaking outside of the the really high quality action uh, franchises like John Wick and Mission Impossible. On this point, it, it, the the one thing that's really nice about these these sequences, particularly the the middle bit in the space station, is that they're telling the story as yes. well, right? Like they're they're James Gunn has a really good grasp of using action to further not only the plot but also the character development. So like the bits where Mantis makes the security guard think that he's in love with Drax, and Drax is like, again, you always do. It's just a very funny. It's like a very funny little character moment that pays off in the in the evolution of their characters and how we see them through throughout the series. That's exactly right. And same with the Adam Warlock sequence at the very beginning, which really sets up the Adam Warlock character and all, all the weirdness that is to follow there. And then the third thing that I want to talk about is something that Alyssa touched on just a little bit, which is the delightful grotesquerie of this movie and the way it manages to do uh, sort of pulp horror, grotesque stuff, uh, kind of body horror, biological stuff um, in a way that is 
totally appropriate for a PG-13 Marvel movie, but also really in keeping with James Gunn's history as a kind of gleeful, gross-out filmmaker. So for people who don't know, James Gunn got his start uh, with the trauma uh, films, and the trauma uh, the sort of brand is most famous for the Toxic Avenger franchise, but he like worked on a movie called Tromeo and Juliet, which is kind of what it sounds like, a gross-out, super-violent uh, uh, sort of riff on Romeo and Juliet, and then, you know, made movies like Slither, that sort of thing, right? Like, just like gross movies that were gross and funny and cleverly gross. And then, of course, in 2018, he got pulled off of the directing job for uh, Guardians of the Galaxy 3 when some uh, right-wing trolls resurfaced a bunch of his old tweets that were making, admittedly, kind of gross uh, inappropriate remarks because that was his brand back when he was make, when he uh, did those tweets. And a bunch of stuff happened. He ended up making the Suicide Squad or the second Suicide Squad film, ended up back on this film. And watching this movie, I think, is just such a it's a reminder of how stupid it was to fire James Gunn from Guardians of the Galaxy for making gross tweets when he was much younger, because the whole point of James Gunn is that he does clever, gross, funny stuff that is also kind of sentimental and like, you know, has like a real heart to it. He does that stuff better than almost any other filmmaker. And that is why Guardians of the Galaxy worked and why it was a huge unexpected, like even for Marvel, the first Guardians of the Galaxy, which they dropped in uh, the first or second week of August when it came out, right? Like they were expecting it to do well, but not nearly as well as it did. And it was because that movie uh, borrowed a bunch from Star Wars and stuff like that. But it was because that movie did weirdo, gross out outsider stuff that James Gunn had honed as a as a, uh, a you know, a, a trauma pulp, low budget filmmaker that it did well because he just does that sort of stuff better than anybody else. And you see that again here. And it was crazy for Disney to fire him and totally correct for him to come back. And I was glad he was able to do it because the story of Rocket Raccoon really, really kind of touched me. I also think it's worth noting um, something he said about making the first Guardians movie, which is that he wanted to make a movie that made him feel like he felt when he was watching the Star Wars movies without sort of remaking the Star Wars movies. And I think that gets at a huge aspect of why these movies are so successful and why the latest Star Wars trilogy was not, right? Because the latest Star Wars trilogy was really devoted to remaking Star Wars, right? It's like you need pretty much the exact same story that's what you get down to the, you know, mysterious revitalization of the emperor, yada, yada. But what Gunn understood about the Star Wars movies is that, you know, they have adult elements, right? Like violence, real threats, just like weird, silly stuff, romance, jokes, unexpected team ups, people, you know, discovering their sort of better nature in spite of themselves, creatures. And he sort of understood that the fun and grossness and silliness in the Star Wars movies is sort of a bridge to those bigger emotions, right? That it's a way of experimenting with being a grown-up and grown-up storytelling. And to a certain extent, that's what makes at least the first two movies in this work really well, both for adults and kids, right? Because you, you know, you have stories about loss and honor and grief and sibling rage, but like, you also have an adolescent tree. 
And again, you know, I think this movie is an interesting example of the extent to which like the PG-13 category has just been like kind of stretched beyond recognition in a way that like, I I don't think it's wrong to call this a PG-13 movie, but I also understand that if this is a PG-13 movie, that category is maybe less useful to some parents for decision-making purposes. Well, it's definitely, I mean, this is, so this is a movie that stretches PG-13 pretty far uh, pretty far on the like it's it's not even really violence it's like emotional violence like the the treatment of rocket raccoon is to- i mean that's torture yeah, animal yeah. animal torture but also there's a there's a there's a shot at the end of this movie that calls to mind the um two-face reveal in the dark knight just a really kind of awful facial disfigurement um that rocket uh, ripped the high evolutionary's face off and now he wears a weird mask like. yeah so i mean like it's uh you know it's uh there it's definitely intense i mean again i i think it's 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 more or less in line with something like the dark knight i don't i don't think it's like i don't think it's wild um to to keep it as a pg-13 movie but it is definitely more it is more viscerally intense than your typical marvel pg-13 movie yeah it's on one end of the spectrum and I think it works better because of that. And you're not going to get that from anybody but James Gunn. I don't disagree. I, that, I Again, I, I think this movie works very well. I, it's very interesting that the two. Uh, so who are who are the most important directors in the MCU? Right. You have you have essentially the Russo brothers who made the second two Captain America movies and then the last two Avengers movies, uh, I think are almost inarguably the most important just in terms of storytelling and all that. I mean, it's Favreau, it's the Russos, and then it's James Gunn. I would I would actually say Joss Whedon's probably more important than John Favreau. Joss Whedon's first Avengers and even second Avengers, I would argue more important than than Favreau, who made a very good Iron Man movie, but also made a very bad Iron Man I mean, Man hard movie. to say, given that Joss Whedon's second film was uh, kind of a mess. He did, however, uh, prove the concept of a big overlapping comic book universe with the first Avengers really spectacularly and sh- set the tone for the next many years of Marvel films. Yeah, and the first Avengers, I would, I still think it's the actual best MCU movie. I think it is the, it's the one that works the best and is, it's one of only two, I think, that I've seen more than once. Um because I actually wanted to watch it again. I was like, I kind of want to watch Adventures again. That never happens to me with a Marvel movie, which is weird. All right, uh, so what do we think? Thumbs up or thumbs down on Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3? Peter? Thumbs up, best Marvel movie, certainly in a year or two. Alyssa? Thumbs up. Thumbs up, good movie. All right, that is it for this week's episode. Make sure to head over to Bulwark Plus for a bonus episode on Friday. Um, buy tickets to the live show, Tuesday, May 16th at the Crystal City Alamo Draft House. They're going out fast they're, go- they're almost gone four left as of right now maybe there will be fewer by the time this this actually airs who knows tell your friends strong recommendation is basically the only way to grow podcast audiences if we don't grow we will die you did not love today's episode please complain to me on twitter at sunny bunch i'll convince you that it is in fact the best show in your podcast feed see you guys next week